So again, this morning, turn with me to John chapter 12. Be in this chapter again. A lot going on here. This chapter kind of represents a, a hinge in the book of John as things begin turning toward the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And so, before we go to this passage, let's go to our Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, pray that you would help us. We pray that we would see you in it, our Savior, our Redeemer, that you would give us wisdom, give us conviction of our sin, lead us to your truth, open our hearts that we might hear and learn from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, this passage brings back a particular story from when I was uh, a little younger than I am today, when I was a new youth pastor in Maryland. Uh, it was like 2008, and I was asked to preach my first sermon on a Sunday morning, which was kind of a big deal for me at the time because I was still unordained, and I was still in seminary, and I was trying to kind of learn the craft of preaching, and at the same time, I wanted to impress the congregation that, yes, this kid is able to preach and able to teach the scriptures, and I had just finished a class on Genesis through Joshua, kind of one of the foundational classes in seminary, and I'd learned quite a bit about different interpretational methods and learned about about uh, scripture in the Old Testament and I and how to look at the Old Testament and so one of the texts that I that I'd learned extensively about from my professor as he taught us how to do this was Genesis 11 and the narrative on the Tower of Babel and so I was so impressed with that that I wanted to preach that to the congregation that morning and so I did and I thought I did a great job I talked about Hebrew verbs and chiastic structure of the text and the fact that God was taller than the tallest tower of man, and it was about ultimately about our pride, and really just went into all of these nuts and bolts of the text. And so when the service was over, I had my my own pride about what I had accomplished, and I thought, wow, that was a great sermon. And this little old man, who's a former preacher, his name was Ray, I loved Ray, and he walked up to me and he told me a story about a sign that was engraved in his own pulpit when he was a pastor, those many years previous to that. And the sign said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And then he looked at me, and he said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I knew immediately what he had meant. Because from all of my Hebrew and my narrative structure knowledge and whatever else, I failed to mention the one hope that could deliver us from the doom of our own sermon-loving pride, Jesus. And so from then on, I made everything I ever taught and everything that I've ever preached on about Jesus. And it's the number one advice that I give to Bible teachers and new pastors and old pastors. Show them Jesus. This famous line, we would see Jesus, is in our text today. And where we see some Greeks, they're seeking out Jesus, whom they find, and of course he gives them a message about hope and salvation. So from this passage, we're going to see Jesus' missions made very clear 
And I think, therefore, our own message becomes more clearly into focus as well. And with that, we'll look at two points, bearing much fruit in death and serving Jesus with our lives. And so with that, let's read the text today. It's John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Let's stand together as we read from the Holy Scripture. <clears throat> John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of, the world, or of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just for a bit of background and context and kind of remembering what was going on last week, remember Jesus walks into town triumphantly on a uh, donkey's colt, and the Pharisees are so incensed that they kind of Proclaim, the world has gone after him. Remember that. They were just upset because they were trying to kill Jesus, and now everyone is following him. And I find it very ironic now that here are some Greeks that have come to see Jesus. The world has indeed gone after him. Jesus said that there were sheep out there, remember in John chapter 10, that were not of this fold, and that we're, we're starting to see that now. We see that with the ultimate culmination of that happening in Acts 2, and then even throughout today we see that. So here we have some Greek people, not necessarily from Greece, but Greek-speaking, non-Jewish people is kind of the word here. And they come to Philip, who's from Bethsaida, which was a town populated with many Gentiles, so that's maybe why John gives us this note here while we're told that. So anyway, they feel comfortable talking to Philip and Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. Andrew tends to be a bringer a lot of times. And so, remember, this is the Passover, and any God-fearing person who worshipped the God of the Bible would have come in. This wasn't just a Jewish ceremony. It was definitely that, and all Jewish people were required to come in. But there were many people in the surrounding areas that also worshipped the God of the Bible. And the Jewish people knew that, and they made a particular part of the temple just for them. And you'll remember 
that Jesus, during the Passover, actually went into the temple and cleansed the Gentile court. He, he drove out the money changers. He drove out the people selling all the livestock. And he drove them out so that the Gentile people could worship. Because zeal for his house would consume him. Remember that. One commentator even suggested that this is maybe the reason why they wanted to see Jesus. Because he had done this miraculous kind of thing and, and gutsy kind of thing. But one thing is for sure, they knew Jesus was someone important, and so they sought him out. And I, and I think that brings up an important thing from my introduction as well, this, this, this idea of we would see Jesus. We preach Christ, and we teach Christ because people need a Savior. They don't need six tips to be a better person or whatever else you might read on Facebook. They need Jesus. And so Jesus Christ is the only Savior for the sins of the world, and in him can true salvation be found, and in him alone. There is no amount of Christian-sounding, spiritual-sounding verbiage that can lead anyone anywhere unless you give them the name of Jesus Christ. Because there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And so we preach the name of Jesus Christ here. And so that leads us to the first point, bearing much fruit in death. And again, we don't know why they wanted to see Jesus or what they asked him when they found him, but we do know what Jesus said to them, so we have those words. And he begins with, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's obviously not talking about a particular time, like a particular hour. He's talking about now is the time. Now is the, this, the time has arrived. Several times in this book we read that the hour has not yet come. So now it has come. And so Jesus is kind of speaking in two ways here. First, he says that the hour is for him to be glorified, for him to be lifted up, for his name to be made great, for his renown to spread across the land even more than it already has. However, immediately after this, what does he go into a discussion about? He goes into a discussion about his death. And so what is he linking together here? He's linking together his own glorification, his own being made great, and his own name being made great, and the fact that he's getting ready to die. And so what are we to gather from this? Well, Jesus is glorified in his death. And so how can it be... <clears throat> that Jesus is glorified from something that is so awful as death on the cross. And we'll talk more about the crucifixion, but it was, a, it was a shameful act. It was an awful act. And the Lord of glory would hang on a cross for the sins of his people, and he is glorified through that. I mean, we even read in verse 27 that his soul is troubled. This is a this is like a fear that he has, a terror of death. We got we just read that from the larger catechism today that Jesus experienced this terror of death because he was a man. And he would even later pray in the garden, Lord, take this away from me. Is there any other way that this can happen? But the cross is the reason why he's come. For this purpose I have come to this hour, he says there in verse twenty seven. Remember what the angel said of him when the angel came to Mary and said, you will call him Jesus. Why? 
because he will save his people from their sins. This is how he plans to do that. His death is the fulfillment of his purpose and his duty on the earth. And in his glory, he gives the Father glory. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. The Father acknowledges this before the Son, that he is glorified in the death of Jesus on the cross. The people around wonder what they heard. Some actually heard the voice, some heard thunder. And that kind of goes back to the belief idea that some don't know what they're hearing and some knew exactly what they heard. This reminds me of a very important passage in Scripture and a very important passage to our understanding of redemption. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, and we'll look at this. This idea of the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father being in the death of the Son. We'll spend quite a bit of time here as we begin talking about the crucifixion, but I particularly want to highlight verses 10 and 11 this morning, again, with this idea of the Father being glorified and the Son being glorified in his death. So let's read this together. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This talking about the servant of the Lord who would die for his people. The will of the Lord to crush him. Or other translations, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Is the Father glorified in the death of the Son? Absolutely. He was pleased to crush him. The Father's will is being accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. And although this death, and although this sacrifice is bringing Jesus the man great grief, he is also satisfied in this task. Look there at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It is in this task of his own death that he is satisfied. He, This is his purpose on earth. He does this willingly. His righteousness lay down and our sins taken up so that we can have his righteousness. In his death, we obtain the righteousness of Christ. And so this is exactly what he's talking about there in verse 24 with this idea of the seed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You guys can all kind of picture what wheat looks like. Take a wheat seed, put it in a jar, you eat it, it really doesn't do anything. It's one seed. But you plant that seed, if that seed dies, so to speak, 
it becomes this plant which produces a hundredfold what it was. And so Christ comes, if he comes to earth and merely tells us how to be good people, we are still just as lost because without Christ, we are so bad that even the good we do is tarnished and incapable of saving us. If he comes to earth and merely says, hey guys, be a good people. See you later. That's what the lost world thinks about Jesus, right? That he was just a good person, he was a good teacher, hey, he said some good things. If he merely did that, then he is like this one seed that dies for nothing. But that's not what he did. He died, and with his death, through belief in him, we share in his good works. We gain his righteousness. And our good works now have merit. Not saving merit, but pleasing to God. These works are now pleasing to God, and we walk in those good works which he has prepared for us. We have that in Christ. And now we and and so how can we live in a world that isn't our own, where there's still death and where there's still sin? Look what he says in verses 31 and 33, 31 through 33. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Through the death of Christ, the ruler of this world, Satan, is dethroned. He no longer has any authority over, or power in the life of a believer. He no longer has any authority to make us go one way or the other. Sure, we are tempted, but we are not under his control. We are under the authority of of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In judgment, he is cast down, the ruler of this world. He is dethroned. And now Jesus is lifted up, glorified in his death, in his resurrection and ascension. And so now this brings us to the next point. What is it that we should do? And this is this idea of serving Jesus with our lives. Thankfully, he gives us a very graphic picture of what we should do here in verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what does it say? To follow Jesus... We must not love this life as an end to itself, and we must see the life to come as the ultimate goal. And so what does it mean, then, to hate this life? We can, tell, we can interpret this several different ways, and I think it is interpreted lots of different ways, as you see, as you see the way that Christians live. It doesn't mean to go and wait by the, uh, the the Bible bus stop, as it were, and cower in fear in any kind of worldliness. Wait for the Bible, bu the Bible bus to pick us up, take us to heaven, because we don't have any business here. We're not going to interact with this world at all. It doesn't mean that. 
it means that we live like Christ. He lived in this way, seeing our purpose here as giving of ourselves daily toward the glory of Christ. And therefore, our glory becomes His. We glory in His cross. We glory in His resurrection. We glory in His sufferings. This is a common refrain in the New Testament. I think best described in in Philippians chapter 3, so please turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. Again, I think this text is very good at helping us understand what it means then to glory in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that comes from or that that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead and again there are other texts in the new testament but I think this one's that talk about this idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But I think this is probably presents to us the clearest idea of what that means. And so now that we have this, how does this apply to the lives of us as believers on a daily basis? What does it mean to hate this world, to not love this life that we have, to serve Christ and follow him in that? We must show the world who our Lord is. Through the way that we live our lives. And please don't misunderstand me. Because I'm not suggesting that we preach the gospel and sometimes use words. As is so often said, I'm not a big proponent of that plan. Because sometimes use words usually turns into never use words. We should always use words. These words that we have contained in the scriptures. Because they are the words of life. And again, people must hear the name of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There is no salvation outside of that name. We can't just simply preach good feelings at people and expect them to follow us. They're not going to, because they can get good feelings anywhere. We have to preach the name of Jesus Christ. Yet, we must live our lives in such a way that we are given an opportunity to preach those words to the people that we know and love without being seen as crazy. And that's a real thing. And so if you think about the opposite end of the spectrum, there's nothing wrong with things like street preaching and open-air evangelism. Those are very good things. But where we will thrive, and I think particularly for us here at Redeemer Community Church, where we will thrive is when we come alongside people in their lives, living sacrificially, living lovingly toward them, Serving others as we serve Christ. It'll be in these opportunities 
that will have the chance to teach the reason that we live the way that we do. We love people because Christ called us to hate this world or to not see the sufferings of this world as an end by themselves. But there is an eternal life that is so good and so wonderful that we want others to be there with us. We really need to want that. I heard an atheist say once, is Penn Jillette, you probably know Penn Jillette, part of Penn and Teller, and he's a very uh, outspoken atheist, <clears throat> often pokes fun at Christians, sometimes, sometimes rightly. And he said that he had a man come up to him after a um, after one of his sets, and he he had a man. This man gave him a Bible, and he was very touched by this man giving him a Bible uh, because he was very sincere. And this is what he said concerning this man and Christians as a whole: that if we really believe that people will suffer an eternal hell without Jesus, and that is what we believe. And if we lived our lives without telling people, then we must be the worst kind of people ever. How much do we have to hate somebody in order to not tell them the truth about Jesus that will save them from an eternal hell? This is from an atheist. This man just politely gave him a Bible, and that's all he did. And it touched him so that he was he came on, went on YouTube and talked about this. And he didn't convert him or anything, but it did help him to understand what Christians are about in evangelism. And so sure, we could stand out in, on Main Street and preach that Jesus saves, and that's fine because that's what the Bible says, and let's do that. But how much more can we show the love of Christ by opening up our homes and our lives to the lost world around us, showing them Jesus in our words and our deeds and the things that we do for people? And so in conclusion, remember what the Pharisees said here. They, in verse 19, they said the world has gone after him. In a sense, the world is looking for a savior. They're looking for everything. Penn Jillette is looking for a savior in something. You can just watch his shows. You can watch the, the stuff that he produces. You see it. And as you get to know folks... In subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, they're going to say to you, we would see Jesus, and we have to be ready to show them. And so let us do that, brothers and sisters. Let us show them. Let us preach and teach a clear gospel message that isn't obstructed by a lack of love in our lives, but let us live as if there is a world beyond this one, and we want others to be there with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to do that. <clears throat> help us to show others who you are, to preach your name, to love people, not for the sake of simply being a number to us, but actually loving people and wanting to see them come to know you. Teach us how to do that, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.